The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders, Paul. We we've done it again. This is a, another conference, and we're still we're still alive. Yeah I, yeah, I wasn't entirely clear what you meant by what we've done, but we've done some things. We watched some <laughs> stuff, we learned some things, and we're ready to share it with our with our spectacular audience. Yeah, this this of course is our first of two ACP recap episodes where we just bring you just the juiciest pearls that we could find. <laughs> Don't like that. Paul, can pearls be juicy? No, they shouldn't be. They're not supposed to be. <laughs> okay, don't eat, don't eat pearls. Paul, uh, <laughs> as people are turning off their podcast players, sure. can you please tell people what is it we generally do on this show and and what we'll be doing today, and then you can introduce our first. We have three wonderful guest hosts with us here, and we'll introduce them as they come on air. Sure. Well, we are usually the. Well, I mean, we're always the internal medicine podcast, but what we usually do is use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. This episode uh, and our next is going to be a little bit different. We're going to summarize some of the amazing clinical pearls we gleaned from the ACP 2021 annual meeting. Um, just a bazillion clinical updates by incredibly talented and smart people um, that will be practice changing through and through. I think we're going to start with the amazing, just almost a hangnail away from being a Dr. Deb Gorth, <laughs> who's going to, I think, start with some of the updates in cardiology uh, with, with Dr. Clyde Yancey, a show favorite. Yeah. Um, Dr. Yancey actually gave two lectures, and the thing that I think is most interesting is that it seems to be the year of SGLT2 inhibitors. And so in his updates on cardiology, it seems official that SGLT2 inhibitors are a heart failure drug. They are not only first line for heart failure, but he also brought some data forward that's showing that they have a synergistic effect with loop diuretics for diuresis. Yeah. It's terribly exciting, Paul. Who knew that these things, you know, the and the story he which he mentioned a little bit, like how this came to be is that some of the older diabetes drugs had negative cardiovascular effects. So they were just trying to prove that these things were safe to use in patients with diabetes, safe for the heart. And now here we are, Paul. Well, I mean, he knew because you <laughs> recall his amazing the the Hef Hef episode from a couple of years ago, his mic drop moment was like, I think He's, he predicted this. He said, I think these are going to be, they're, they're now viewed as diabetes medications with possible cardiovascular side effects. I think the paradigm is going to switch and they're going to be known as heart failure medications with the benefit of glucose, glucose improvement. And I, he's, I think he's been proven exactly right. So they're exciting meds right now. And at this time, this is limited to, the, this is limited to systolic heart failure, like heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. But he mentioned that the emperor reduced trial will be coming out and we're hopeful that this will seem as promising for patients with HEF-PEF, like preserved ejection fraction. The other thing that I like that he said about this was with the preserved ejection fraction versus reduced ejection fraction, you just have to figure out if they ever had a reduced ejection fraction and are now recovered because those patients should be thought about a little bit differently than someone that's like has an EF in the 40%, 45% range. What other, what other pearls from Dr. Yancey did you want to highlight? One of the other things that seems like it could be an interesting development for hospitalized patients with heart failure is the use of iron replacement in patients without anemia, but with some iron deficiency. So the definition of that is this is in patients with 
hef ref, so an EF of under 50%, and a ferritin under 100 micrograms per liter, or a ferritin between 100 and 299, and a transferrin saturation under 20%. And these patients seem to benefit from IV iron. It looks like there are ongoing clinical trials in the US to see if these same effects can happen with oral iron, but these recommendations have creeped into the European recommendations for heart failure treatment. Yeah. I'm not sure that I'm ready to start doing this for all patients yet, but it it does seem we heard a little bit about this from Dr. Auerbach when we did the IV iron episode, Paul. And the essentially what he reminded us of and what Dr. Yancey told us about when we were talking to him about heart failure is that heart failure there is an inflammatory process to it. So that's why they have these higher ferritin cutoffs, like we talked about with our, our recent CKD episode as well. And uh, the IV iron, Paul, just, it must have pleiotropic effects, Paul. I think it, yeah. <laughs> it's on the <laughs> yep. list. Yep. Synergistic with statins. And I should make the, the requisite joke that somewhere Stuart's scratching frantically at the door. He just knows something's happening. Head <laughs> <laughs> cocked to the side, whining a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Deb, did you have any more from this session or did you want to move on to another another topic? I'd love to talk about the updates in hospital medicine. Okay. So yeah, that was that was from today. And I think one of the, the summary points is that we should not muck around with blood pressure medication in the inpatient setting. And so it looks like in all adult population either escalating, giving oral or IV blood pressure medications in patients who are hospitalized for non-cardiac causes results in higher rates of AKI and uh, myocardial ischemia. This has also been shown in older, older adults um, by Anderson et al. in 2019, um, but a similar study in all adults recapitulated that the idea that changing blood pressure medications in an inpatient setting does not end well. Paul, you, you most certainly have something to say about this. No, I mean, this this feels right. I soon to be interns, listen up. And I feel like this is sort of, um, this goes along nicely with sort of just the idea, like the things we do for no reason and, and treating acute inpatient hypertension. There's no need for PR and antihypertensives. And also hospitalized patients tend to be hypertensive for 300 million reasons that are not essential hypertension, whether it's pain or excess volume or withdrawal or agitation or we're waking them up at night or taking the blood pressure wrong. So it's just this goes along with I think data that we've had before that that you don't the essential hypertension is not an inpatient problem, so don't treat it as such. I think we have to do a better job of not just giving the conciliatory prescription for PRN blood pressure medication and do the education. Yes, I I, I agree that this blood pressure needs to be optimized, but this is not the setting to do it. I'm not worried about it for these reasons, or I'm going to work on these things instead. And I think the other point that you made which I don't want to gloss over is you should have a high threshold to start new blood pressure medications on a patient who's an, on an inpatient, especially if they're an older adult and, and frail, because we, we do have evidence of harm from that. And I, I think if you are going to do something, please talk to their primary care doctor. Please give, give Paul Williams a call. Tell him what you want to do. See if he gives you the blessing because- It made me so happy. It was- <laughs> Genuinely. Yes. There, there's a lot of times there's a lot of backstory to why people are on what they're on and, and, uh, and you may be missing a lot of the picture. And also, as Paul mentioned already, there's a million reasons people could have, maybe not a million, Paul, but there's a lot of reasons that people could have uncontrolled blood pressure in the hospital. So thank you for bringing that up, Deb. Paul and I, we could talk about, we could rant on this forever. 
<laughs> and have. There's <laughs> and lots have. and lots of That's tape true. on this. <laughs> All right, what's next? So I think one of the coolest talks from today was looking at oral antibiotics for osteomyelitis, bacteremia, and endocarditis by Dr. Brad Spellberg. And so he gave a pretty compelling talk that IV antibiotics for these infections are a little bit more of a things we do for no reason than an evidence-based practice. And he had extremely well-cited slides, which it seems like they're available on a website with all of his links, but also the two most relevant trials that he cited was the OVIVA trial, looking at oral antibiotics being non-inferior for complex orthopedic infections. And then also there's the POET trial, uh, which was looking at oral versus IV antibiotics for endocarditis. And this is left-sided endocarditis. And in both of these patient populations, it's uh, stable patients with source control who can tolerate oral antibiotics. It was it was a really well done argument. Uh, this I was it was very impressive, and the the lack I think what was also very impressive is just the lack of evidence. I think we we he mentioned we do these things because we've always done things these this way, but that's not a reason to keep doing it. And now we have evidence that these other things work. So he and he's not saying we shouldn't give IV ever to those patients. He's saying start them on IV, get source control, clear their blood cultures if they're bacteremic you know, take care of the patient. And once they're stabilized, ready for discharge, rather than this person going out with an IV catheter for four to six weeks, they they may complete an oral uh, oral medication. And he also pointed out, Paul, that some of the earlier trials were done like many years ago with older agents that didn't achieve the blood levels that some of these newer agents are able to achieve. And uh, I, I just thought that was all great. Um, which reminds me of speaking of things we used to do and now no longer are doing. What he talked about, Rush uh, Benjamin Rush. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I th- I think we have to talk about that. Uh, yeah, I think I think we have. Well, maybe maybe uh, IV antibiotics for these out- in these outpatient settings are going to go the way of Rush's thunderbolt, which apparently <laughs> was <laughs> was something along the lines of. A poison with a side of diarrhea. Is that a good description? <laughs> so like not the good diarrhea is what I'm hearing. <laughs> no, not the good diarrhea. Paul, you're going to want that diarrhea. If you're getting a poison, <laughs> that's probably how people survived it is because he, he, put the, he put the laxative in there. Without the laxative, people might have died. All right. Well, tell me more. You have my interest. <laughs> so I don't, I don't have the recipe up right now. Well, it was, merc- um, but it was mercury, right? It, it was mercury and a laxative, and then there was a bunch of other stuff in there. But I think the 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 top line, the top line stuff, Paul. There was mercury and a laxative, and he was giving that to patients, and it was called Rush's Thunderbolt, and they would use it for like everything. You had a headache, a toothache, you bumped your elbow, you got Rush's Thunderbolt, and who knows they what were still happened. Av- available up into 19- 1940, which yeah. seems like a, a little bit too late for that to be happening. <laughs> Excellent. Good. And so hopefully the acute encephalopathy and the raging diarrhea distracts you from whatever ails you. So it makes sense. It seems, it sounds mostly evidence-based. I'm going to have to ask my grandmother if she remembers Rush's Thunderbolt because she was, she was alive. Maybe when she, maybe when she was a kid, they were giving her that for her, whatever bumps and bruises she got playing out in the schoolyard. All right, Deb, we, we should move on. This is, this has been great stuff so far. What else, what else did you want to highlight before we get to our other two mystery guests? I, I think those are my my big my big pearls as a 
as an incoming intern, I, I might also want to propose a clinical trial for, for cardiology learning. Um, just listening to Dr. Clyde Lancy's voice lowered my <laughs> heart rate and blood pressure. Um, so, so maybe that could be a good intervention for incoming interns. Yes. I think all podcasters should be replaced with Dr. Clyde Yancey's voice. <laughs> Deb, aren't you an engineer? Can't you make some sort of a device that would turn my voice to sound like Clyde Yancey's? Kind of like, you know, in Scary Movie and all those ones where they, they have that thing they hold to the phone. I think, please get working on that. But thank you very much. And I, I think the medicine say- community would appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, perfect. Our episode today is sponsored by Panacea Financial a digital bank that's making banking better for doctors because it was built by doctors. Whether you're a fourth-year med student, a resident, or an attending physician, Panacea Financial is a bank designed specifically for doctors by doctors that have lived through financial frustrations themselves. Panacea offers free checking with no ATM fees nationwide, 24-7 customer service, and loan options designed specifically for physicians. At Panacea Financial, you can get a PRN personal loan funded in as little as 24 hours at less than half the interest rate of a credit card to use for things like transitioning to residency or your next career move. Panacea Financial also gives you the opportunity to refinance your medical school debt with low fixed rates to choose from. There's no guessing, no bait and switch, and no wasted time on a pre-application to find your rate. And to top it off, every Panacea Financial customer gets their own free personal banker who is always a phone call or email away to provide the personalized service you deserve no matter where you move in your career. If you're ready to declare independence from traditional banks, visit PanaceaFinancial.com to learn more. That's PanaceaFinancial.com. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC. Why don't we go, why don't we go to Dr. Avital Glasser, our perioperative medicine chief. What a surprise audience. Uh, maybe, maybe Claire will add some applause in here. Claire, could you add some crowd noise in here when, uh, when we introduce Avi? Now I want to know why this is a surprise. <laughs> yeah! I have no idea. It's been okay, a long just week. <laughs> where, where do you want to start, Avi? So the first pearl that I'm going to share is from this morning's uh, updates in geriatric medicine talk given by friend of the pod, Dr. Eric Wadera. And he talked about um, getting to the, the broader theme of the prescribing cascade that you start a medication, somebody gets side effects, and you have to start one or more medications to handle the side effects. And this specifically looked at the prescribing cascade that it can accompany calcium channel blocker prescribing for antihypertensive therapy. So Another facet of hypertensive treatment. So share the background that peripheral edema occurs in almost a quarter percent of patients on a calcium channel blocker and is dose dependent. And our friend, also a friend of the pod, uh, Dr. Tony Brew, has a fantastic tutorial about the mechanism of this. And maybe we can link it in the show notes. But the, the peripheral edema from calcium channel blockers is not intravascular or total body volume overload. It's vasodilation and leakage of fluid. So, but a lot of patients who develop peripheral edema on calcium channel blockers end up on a loop diuretic or another type of diuretic to combat the side effect. So this, he shared a study from just last year, 2020, that was published in JAMA Internal Medicine, looking at the prescribing cascade of calcium channel blockers and diuretics. And it compared um, calcium channel blockers and other antihypertensives. And in a nutshell, at both 90 days and one year, a significantly higher percentage of older adults 
uh, ended up on a loop diuretic if, if it had been a calcium channel blocker. So just painted the point that when you prescribe something, be aware of the potential adverse reactions or predictable side effects, and that you need to look into, if you somebody comes in with a new symptom, to pause and say, is this an effect of, an adverse effect of something I recently prescribed, or maybe they've been on for a while, or there was a dose change, versus a new medical diagnosis. And he prescribed, um, <laughs> prescribed he shared three deep prescribing tools, including one that's an app and um I'll put those links in the show notes as well, but with tools at our disposal to help uh, combat the prescribing cascade. And mechanistically, ferrosamide for calcium channel blocker causing edema doesn't work, right? So you have... You I have believe so, yeah, because it's not intravascular yeah. volume overload. Because right. it's not that I'm going to encourage this because this defeats the whole point, but I think it's, it's ACE inhibitors and ARBs are actually the ones that are the best suited to mitigate that kind of edema because it actually causes post-capillary dilation, and that kind of gets rid of that increased hydrostatic exactly. pressure, and then you don't have that extra extravagation. So if you want to fix it in your younger patients, don't throw in your thiazides or ferrosamides, throw in a calcium channel blocker, or not calcium blocker, an ACE or an ARB. But anyway, we're de-prescribing. We're not doing that here. So yeah. anyway, moving on. But the Lasix doesn't work was the point I was starting with. And correct me if I'm wrong, but but I feel like Tony addressed that mechanism in the tutorial itself. Because I feel like he had a quiz at the end. Is like, you know, if they need a second antihypertensive, like, what would be a good choice if they've had edema from their calcium channel blocker? And there's actually a combination. I, I don't, I'm not familiar with the tutorial, but I don't know if Paul is, but there's a combo, there's a combo pill depending on the market, I guess it, it's, but I think it's relatively affordable is what I'm saying. It's an ACE inhibitor and a calcium channel blocker. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's a, a good choice for these folks. Paul, what were you going to say? No, I, I, I've derailed us enough. I had nothing to add. <laughs> okay. Avi, what, what else did you want to get to? All right. So uh, I, I'm attending ACP as someone who specializes in perioperative medicine, but I'm still an internist and try to keep up my broader internal medicine knowledge basis. But of course, anytime there's a pearl in a talk that pertains in any way, shape, or form to perioperative medicine, you better believe my ears perk. So I'm going to share this pearl from the Ambulatory General Internal Medicine updates from yesterday. And the pearl was specifically about preoperative evaluation of obstructive sleep apnea and shared the results of the 2019 POSA study. Uh, and this was um, from senior author Dr. Frances Chung, who is literally the perioperative sleep apnea researcher. She was the, the, the last author. And that study, I believe, was published in JAMA. And just for, for quick reference, because I'm nerding out here, Dr. Chung is the creator of the Stop Bang Score, which was actually originally created almost a decade ago for the perioperative setting and has since been expanded. So um, the background for this article is that the perioperative state unmasks or un exacerbates obstructive sleep apnea physiology uh, through multiple mechanisms, um, central acting meds, anesthesia, narcotics, other sedatives on board. Um, oropharyngeal neuromuscular weakness from residual muscle relaxant effect. And we know that sleep apnea can be associated with pretty significantly increased risk of pulmonary complications post-op. And the authors in the POSA group, which I think was like perioperative cardiovascular effects of obstructive sleep apnea, they hypothesized that unrecognized OSA would be associated with increased cardiovascular risk, not just pulmonary risk. And that included MI, cardiovascular death, heart failure, AFib, as well as a couple other conditions that were in their primary endpoint. 
So they found that about two-thirds of patients had unrecognized sleep apnea, and 11.2% of patients had severe obstructive sleep apnea. And their conclusions was that unsuspected or undiagnosed sleep apnea is very common, and then severe sleep apnea was associated with significantly increased cardiovascular events. And actually, if you look at the tables in the study, and he showed this, all degrees of sleep apnea were associated with an increased risk of unplanned ICU admission or readmission. And I, I don't know if that, I don't remember if that qualified for cardiac events or pulmonary events. Interestingly, and the, he, the, the presenter was explicit about this in the discussion of the article, the study did not explore if specific sleep apnea management strategies then improved outcomes and then included for if patients underwent formal sleep diagnostic testing, um, like if you delayed surgery for a sleep study, did it improve outcomes? It wasn't, it didn't, wasn't designed to look at that. So this was actually um, posited to the audience uh, with a clinical vignette about a middle-aged patient, and I forget if his stop bang was three or four from the way the case was presented of this hypothetical case, but would you delay elective or a time-sensitive surgery to obtain an outpatient sleep study based on the data from the POSA study? And I think this is still a difficult topic. Uh, Certainly through the audience Q&A, there was a lot of discussion about insurance barriers or other systems level barriers to obtaining a sleep study, like how long are we uh, potentially delaying a surgery, especially if we don't know that delaying a surgery for a sleep study will improve outcomes. In this case, the hypothetical case was a patient with a a renal cell carcinoma, so it was a malignancy-related surgery. And then through the discussion, there was some interesting emphasis on the fingers crossed easier access to home sleep studies. But but I feel like in my practice, it's still pretty hard to get somebody into a sleep study in under a month or two. So what, what's your conclusion? Is this going to change your practice is, or is this an area that we just need to wait for more, for more clinical information rather than just empirically putting everyone on perioperative CPAP? I think I think we still need more information. I, I am optimistic we'll get more information from this this very prolific research group. They're out of Ontario, Canada. Um, what I my practice at, at Cashlack Northwest is to look at the the stop bang score itself. Um, Dr. Chung and her team have done prior work that the higher the stop bang score is itself, the more sensi- sensitive and specific it is for severe sleep apnea. So again, in the POSA study, it was the severe sleep apnea that had the highest risk of complications. And, and for some of the endpoints, mild to moderate sleep apnea was not significantly predictive of adverse cardiovascular outcomes. But I think that's something to keep in mind too. Um, so some, I do take someone with a stop bang of three differently than someone with a stop bang of seven or eight. And was having trouble finding the reference, but Dr. Chung has also done work that if you kind of play with the variables in the stopping, like they have a stopping of four. So like every middle-aged male patient on one antihypertensive has a stopping of three. They could have a normal BMI, they can have no daytime fatigue, they can have no snoring, but technically they're still at elevated risk. But if like you add a BMI over 35, or you add an increased neck circumference, as that fourth point, or you add witnessed apneic episodes as the fourth point, the operating characteristics do change as well. So, so I do get granular with, with the stop bang score, as well as the time-sensitive nature of the surgery. I think also um, we have tools at our disposal to be proactive. The, the speaker talked about elevating head of the bed, decreasing narcotics, or centrally acting medications before sleep. 
So I think we do have some preventative strategies at the moment, and, and I'm looking forward to more to come. Yeah. All right. Hey, audience. If you've listened to the show for a while, you know that I love geriatrics. And you know what else I love? Palliative medicine. And we're constantly getting emails from our audience asking us, why aren't you covering more topics in palliative care? I need help with this for my practice. Well, audience, our sponsor today is Jerry Pal. That's right. They are a geriatrics and palliative care podcast for every healthcare professional. They're hosted by Eric Widera, who you may know from our Jerry Siders episode where we talked about dementia, do's and don'ts, along with his good friend, Dr. Alex Smith. They're both clinicians and professors of geriatrics and palliative care at UCSF. And together, they interview some of the brightest minds in geriatrics, hospice, and palliative care, and they go deep on issues that matter. It's serious stuff, but they have a lot of fun, and they even sing a little bit. Check it out. You'll see. I especially loved the recent episode they did on dementia where they talked about some of the new monoclonal antibody therapies that are being studied for dementia and Alzheimer's. They talked about advanced blood markers and advanced imaging testing, really forecast like what's in the pipeline, what might the future of dementia care look like. Definitely take a listen to that episode and definitely take a listen to all the Jerry Powell episodes. You can find them on your podcast app by searching Jerry Powell, that's G-E-R-I-P-A-L, all one word, and check out their website where you can get episode transcriptions and links to all the resources they discuss on the show. That's jerrypal.org. Once again, G-E-R-I-P-A-L dot O-R-G. We had some pearls from neurology and, uh, and hepatology. Paul, what do you feel like getting to first for this? Let's let's do neuro and hepatology first. Let's do neuro first. Neuro first. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Why don't you present the first one? You and Avi, I think you guys are you all you all gonna trade off on this here. So let's let's Paul, you why don't why don't you go first? You serve. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just gonna actually pick the one that I think is probably most relevant directly to my practice. There were there's a lot of really interesting stuff there, but I feel like some of it is just better suited to be dealt with on the inpatient side versus mm -hmm. something that's better dealt with by a neurologist. The thing that I thought was particularly of interest was this rapid eye movement sleep behavior disorder, uh, which I've seen a couple of times in my own practice. I, it's, it's a diagnosis the patient has carried with them to me, so I, it had already cheerfully been dealt with. But for those of you who are not wildly familiar with it, which I had not been, is this is characterized largely by dream reenactment. And so you'll hear stories from patients that they, they dream they're in a fight and they're not allowed to sleep with their wife anymore because they were just punching and swinging their arms or sort of <laughs> up and walking around. And most of the time, this behavior disorder is is idiopathic, but there are secondary causes, including medications, which, of course, is the the, the most interesting thing and the thing that we can intervene upon. And the one that came out uh, in this particular talk is antidepressants are probably the most notorious cause of secondary uh, RBD. And so if you have a patient who has this type of behavior or is reporting this to you, um, a good med medication reconciliation is probably worth doing and seeing if they're on specifically SSRIs. And they're not really sure why this is the case. And it is reversible if it is secondary. So if you stop the medication, the behavior uh, will then abate. And the thought is maybe this unmasks a covert synucleinopathy, which is not a word I think I've ever tried to say out loud. <laughs> I think I went really well. And I just want to pause for a second and acknowledge that. Thank you. Um, so something like a, an underlying Parkinsonism, perhaps, um, is maybe being un unmasked by these. And then also, interestingly, for the, the budding toxicologist, tramadol is also implicated as well. Um, and I'm not sure if they're pausing. That's because of the the sort of SNRI quality of it or not. But so those two medications, so 
SS or antidepressants and then tramadol are sort of worth thinking about in a patient who's reporting these types of behaviors because those are things that you as an internist can probably actively intervene upon. So I thought that was a really high yield thing for something I'd not thought much about before. And she said that the for over 50 years old, it's more likely to be like a, a neuro that if it's idiopathic initially, it may be a neurodegenerative process that will then kind of make itself known. And if they're under 50, it's more likely to be secondary. And Paul, what's that movie is Sleepwalk with me? The, um, I forget the Mike comedian. Berbiglia. Mike Berbiglia. Yeah. He has a, he has a good movie about, it's called Sleepwalking with me, something like that. And Sleepwalk he's, with me. You got it. he has, he has that condition. Um, so it's a, it's a good film. I, I, well, I liked it anyway. I don't know if it's up to Paul's taste. I've never seen it. I'm okay. sure it's great. <laughs> All right. Avi, what, what else did you like from that session and anything else in the neuro section? I, I had one that I wanted to to bring up if, if you didn't have anything else. Um, yeah, this was a great talk. This was a combination of neurology and, and GI updates. I thought one of my the favorite my favorite neurology pearl was focused on Lewy body dementia or dementia with with Lewy bodies, and um, she presented a the speaker presented a case of someone with uh, worsening cognitive status, Parkinsonism, uh, and and muscular or, or neuromuscular changes, as well as hallucinations. So that that classic illness script for for Lewy body dementia. And the pearl was that, that anticholinesterase inhibitors, especially denepazil, have been shown to improve cognition, reduce fluctuations, and enhance uh, activities of daily living. And yeah. I thought it was just a nice, sweet pearl. I think, especially maybe somewhat, if based on our practice area, we don't diagnose dementia, type of dementia that often, or don't see Lewy body dementia that often. You know, sometimes the Parkinsonism features can be so dominant that it gets confused with with parkinson's disease but the treatment can be quite different so that you know that classic hallucinations thing is really important to tease out in your history um she so she, this was a clinical case where she had presented five options for medication therapy and ropinirol was i believe one of the options and she specifically said that that can be harmful in patients with lewy body dementia because of the dopaminergic effect can in the hallucinations as opposed to a patient with, with Parkinson's disease. I think we just did this episode with Josh Wee, which was really fantastic, where he told us his older person with slow, slow dementia, they talk slow, they move slow. He thinks either Parkinson's, you know, with dementia or dementia with Lewy body. And we talked about the meds with him and we were sort of dis- dismissing the medications, but yeah. This I thought was will make me rethink that a little bit. So if someone does have that slow dementia, it might be more worth a trial of denepazil because physiologically it makes a little bit more sense, like what you would actually be treating with the medication versus in Alzheimer's. I know we're just kind of crossing our fingers and hoping something works. Right. So uh, definitely that'll be uh, a practice changing for me, though. I'm not sure how often I'm seeing Louis Louis body dementia. And uh, why don't we move on just just for sake of time? Why don't we move on to the the uh, hepatology pearls? Mm-hmm. And Paul, what was your what was your top one there? I'm gonna this this may come as a surprise, um, but I, I think, don't think this is directly hepat- hepatologic or liver related necessarily. But he, the the speaker was tremendous um, and talked about IPMNs, which are, are things that I I'm, I'm actually blanking on the what intramedullary pancreatic neoplasms is that. Sure. No one else knows off the top of their I head. I think it's mucinous. It is. You're right. Uh, <laughs> thank, thank you, Molly. <laughs> Dr. Hoybine. Um, Yeah, which is why we, why we abbreviate it, or at least why I do. But in any case, um, there are these pancreatic findings often found incidentally, often found in older patients. 
And if they grow, they can actually progress to pancreatic cancer, which is the reason that we get excited about them. But the point that the speaker made uh, is that the definitive management of these lesions is the Whipple procedure, which is a huge surgery, even in your healthiest of patients. And these tend to be found in older patients who may not necessarily have a whole lot of reserve. I think the specific uh, theoretical case he proved was someone who had sort of rapid uh, cognitive decline and was just not doing well overall. So the, the larger point being is that there's not a whole lot of utility in doing active surveillance of these lesions if there's no chance that this patient would be able to tolerate a Whipple at any point or desire that as part of their as part of their care. So the surveillance doesn't really change management so much that you don't have to be subjecting patients to these uh, routine MRIs, which is typically what we do when we see these things incidentally after we find them. So I thought that was a really high yield point. Yeah, I found in general that the speaker for all of the GI hepatology pearls, as well as the neurology pearls, they both really talked about patients very, very holistically and really looked at the patient in the context of all their medical conditions or these hypothetical cases. But uh, again, the, the perioperative clinician in me started jumping up and down when the pearls for this case were not only, you know, they can be slow growing, uh, especially if they're a side chain one, so sort of depending on where along the pancreatic duct system they are, the operating characteristics at a millimeter difference in imaging over the course of a year may be non-significant or within standard of error. But really, as I said, this is an 80-year-old person who's not, I mean, Whipples are big surgeries, and right. tough surgeries to recover from, but really just laid out that core internal medicine skill set that will this change management and do you go down the rabbit hole of further investigations if you're not going to offer this, this patient a more potentially morbid surgery? Avi, he had another pearl related <laughs> to surgery on gastric bypass patients, uh, specifically related to alcohol. I can recap that one unless you wanted to to go over it. I'll go over it. Thanks for lobbing me that football. So this was a neat pearl, sort of not buried, but combined with a pearl uh, to remind us to be mindful uh, and, and build trust and really try to, to get granular with uh, determining how much alcohol a patient is consuming, reminding us that the threshold for healthy drinking or non-healthy drinking does vary between men and women based on metabolism. But he shared that patients with prior gastric bypass surgery are actually at higher risk for alcohol-related liver injury. And I think there's been some research, or, and we were bantering about the research in general about changes to psychiatric status or psychiatric baseline after gastric bypass, but he's focused on the fact that alcohol metabolism changes after gastric bypass because you lose the changes to potential alcohol absorption at the gastric level. So that it may take even less alcohol consumption to progress to alcohol-related liver injury or liver disease in someone who's had a history of a gastric bypass. And he provided, um, it's called, I think it's called the ANI index, alcoholic liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, and there's a way to calculate the ANI risk. And I think that was to try to figure out if their liver injury is, yeah. or their liver disease is due to alcohol or metabolic syndrome. and That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't, my, my question to myself during that was, you know, how is that going to change? I mean, either yeah, way, right. I'm going to tell them, please don't do alcohol, you know, let's optimize your metabolic status. Let's get you off alcohol. But uh, yeah, it, it, it is something that exists. I thought the other thing he talked about, Paul, the liver tox site, have you, have you used that before? He was talking about yeah. drug induced yep. liver injury. That's a great and, site. Yeah. So if people haven't checked it out, it's an NIH site that we can link to, but it's it was on liver to it's called liver tox, and you can look up pretty much any drug and it is a really great resource to tell you uh what drug induced liver injury might look like for any given drug and the instance of it. Um because 
he made the point that one of the cases he presented was a, a drug-induced liver injury with nitrofurantoin, which looks kind of like an autoimmune hepatitis and is treated similarly. But uh, fortunately for the patient, once you withdraw the offending medication, you can eventually get them off steroids or whatever anti-inflammatories that they were on. And I just love the fact that he was just saying like each each medication that causes like some sort of drug-induced liver injury might have its own pattern. And that can be how you might figure out which medication the patient's on caused yeah. the picture that you're seeing. Yeah, that's sort of an illness script to different different forms of dilly. Just to cycle back to the alcohol-associated liver disease pearls, and I want to give uh, a shout out to the speaker. I think he was just very, very humanistic and compassionate in his approach to diagnosing, working out potential alcohol-related liver disease. Just really used patient-centered terms. Um, the other interesting pearl he shared was that uh, as you're trying to get more granular, sort of ask the next logical questions about you. So one drink, how many ounces is it? Use the t- your diagnostic tools. How long? Uh, he would say, how long does it take to finish a bottle? So um, I think he gave the example of you know, a, an older patient who has a shot glass of wine a night, but counts it as their glass of wine a night, is at a different level of risk than someone who um, has like a large tumbler of wine. He also shared that ask if they drink at home or out at a bar or restaurant. I know with COVID modifications, it's a little different now. Um, but he said that bar- licensed bartenders actually might be much more consistent with their drink sizes than someone who's self-pouring at home. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought that was, that was just a great an, tip. Interesting, like, you know, that's, that, that goes in as another tool in my history-taking toolkit. Mm-hmm. Any, Paul, anything else on this section or any other, any, anything else that you wanted to, to bring up? No, obviously all my high points. Yeah, I, I wanted to also praise Dr. Sanchez in terms of just his, his patient-centric, destigmatized use of language. I think I even um, I pointed out on Twitter, uh, and I, yeah, I just, I, I, all the points were, even the ones that we've covered on our show previously were, were spectacularly done. So I thought it was a, a really strong talk. And we will be talking more about gastric bypass in the, in the near future here. And we do talk a little bit about some of the psychiatric comorbidities and alcohol use in that episode as well. All right. Well, Avi, thank you. I, I, I'm sure uh, it, the audience is thrilled to have the our perioperative chief just popping in for a recording. Uh, it's thrilling. Um, we're going to go on to <laughs> Dr. Molly Hoibline, who has a bunch of random and awesome stuff uh, that she's going to go through. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, def- definitely some random pearls in there. Um, I have to say, you know, I'm looking forward to next year when hopefully we can do this in person. But I do think ACP lined up a, a great list of speakers here. So since we're on the topic of bariatric surgery, um, Dr. We highlighted some recent papers from Annals that reviewed some new data around bariatric surgery. And I think we'll get into this more on the upcoming Curbsiders episode. But one thing I wasn't aware of was the American Diabetes Association actually back in 2018 put out a guideline recommending considering bariatric surgery as an option for patients with type 2 diabetes and a lower BMI, so less than 35, so 30 to 35, and then actually down to 27 in Asian Americans if the hyperglycemia is inadequately controlled. Um, So I really hadn't had it on my radar to think about bariatric surgery for patients with a BMI less than 35, but I will consider thinking about this. I don't know what insurance coverage is like, but um, I do know it can be very valuable in managing diabetes. Yeah, it seems like the when you refer to a bariatric surgeon, there there's a lot of people involved, and 
I, I don't think the pa- there's, I think the risk of a patient getting the surgery and then finding out it wasn't covered is, it seems like it would be low because there's so, so much, it's like a slow moving process that has a lot of boxes to check. Uh, so it's probably worth referring, it's probably worth referring and at least asking the question based on what you're saying. Yeah. And then the other trial she highlighted was um, a randomized control trial, which I think is always really valuable in thinking about bariatric surgery because so much of the data is observational. And this one looked at um, also some of these less overweight patients, so BMI 30 to 39, and randomized patients with hypertension to Roux-en-Y gastric bypass versus medical therapy. And they were primarily looking at hypertension outcomes and found that about 30% of patients after bypass could come off their hypertension medications versus 2% of placebo patients. So there wasn't an overall benefit in terms of improved hypertension control. Uh, So I think this isn't totally practice changing, but in patients that you really want to prioritize reducing medications, something to consider. Yeah, a lot, I, a lot of people certainly come off like their hypoglycemic medication. If they're diabetic, I, I see them coming off those medications. And I, I would have thought blood pressure. Paul, what about you? Would you have thought it would have been more? Were, were they including gastric sleeve and bypass or just because I, I, my impression was a lot of patients just like magically, they just like come off like everything right away. Yeah, so this was just ruin Y patients, but again, it was sort of that lower BMI cutoff, so 30 to 39, and I think a lot of times we're seeing patients more like the 35 uh-huh. to 45 for their BMI. It included the people who lose more weight get more benefit. And then moving on to thyroid disorders, uh, Dr. Douglas Paw gave us a few good pearls. We've covered thyroid episodes before on the curbsiders, so a lot of his material was things that we've covered previously, but a couple pearls I wanted to highlight. He gave this uh, nice framework for thinking about increasing thyroid doses in early pregnancy. And a lot of times patients will see their primary care doctor before they see their OB-GYN. And I had been trained increase 30% or 50%, uh, which, you know, you're thinking about the numbers and it's hard to come up with the exact dose. And he recommended just increasing by two pills a week. So if someone's taking 75 micrograms every day, you go up to nine pills a week. Um, And that's just a very easy thing to remember. And then he also highlighted some cases where patients previously had been controlled on their stable dose of levothyroxine and then trying to think about why suddenly their TSH is high. And we often think about things like absorption issues around um, dosing with food or dosing with supplements. But he highlighted that patients' absorption is very linked to gastric pH. And so patients with H. pylori infection, atrophic gastritis, or PPI use had a 22 to 37% higher uh, dose of levothyroxine to get them at goal. So just something to think about, you know, if you started a new PPI and now the patient is needing more medication, it makes sense. And then patients with adherence issues, so you have them on their levothyroxine, but you just can't get their TSH down and you think it's because they're not taking it, they can take their full weekly dose just once a week. So all the pills all at once. Um, I, I love that. I, I have not pulled the trigger on that yet. Paul, have you? Absolutely not. No, I mean, it sounds great, but also I'm a coward. So I, I just right. have this one patient I think of who her TSH is always seven and she always feels bad. And I'm, yeah, I'm like, I'm going to try this with her. So, <laughs> Right. Dr. Mandel, uh, Susan Mandel, who we spoke to about hypothyroidism, I believe she said that there are certain situations where people will do it that way. It's, it's, you can do it. It's not as like physiologic. It's definitely not recommended as first line, but if there's a clinical situation, like you're a caregiver and you're only in the house once a week and you're going to give it to somebody, you can give it once a week. Or um, she she gave a couple other examples that I, I can't remember offhand. 
uh, it's, I thought it was really neat when I was reading about it. I got excited. I was like, why are we doing this for everyone? And she's like, no, nah, hold, hold off. <laughs> you know, it's not <laughs> for everyone. You can't make it that easy. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. And then one final point about the thyroid is that the United States Preventive Service Task Force has a grade D recommendation against thyroid cancer screening. And that includes a physical exam for thyroid and then also just screening um, thyroid ultrasounds. So I think we can feel a little better that we are not doing great thyroid exams on routine physicals. I, that's great. I, I love to hear about stuff that I, I don't need to be doing. There's so <laughs> much that we do have to be doing uh, in the in the office with the patient. I'm glad I can stop ordering those screening ultrasounds that I've been doing. So that's, that should save a lot of money for the <laughs> All right. And then moving on to um, the clinical triad, lower GI. Um, they had three speakers talking about lower GI issues. So Dr. Kelly talked about C. difficile. Dr. Rao talked about constipation. And Dr. Stolman talked about diverticulitis. And a couple pearls from each of those. So maybe some of you are already doing this, but I have not pulled the trigger on this one either. But he reminded us that it is okay to not treat uncomplicated diverticulitis with antibiotics. So you can just provide conservative uh, care for patients that are low risk and you know are not feeling great but doing okay. Studies found that there was no difference in terms of pain, lengths of um, sickness, recurrence risk, quality of life in patients who were treated with antibiotics versus not. Paul, have, what do you think? Have you done it? I, have I done the thing where you don't do anything? I have yeah. not. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what that would look like if it's if it's a patient who is maybe has symptoms that you think might be diverticulitis, but they're it's they're not that sick, and you're not going to get imaging, and you're just like, well, let's just watch this. Like maybe maybe you have done this and you don't know it. Uh, if someone's been sick enough or in enough discomfort to get an, a CAT scan, you know, to help us make the diagnosis, then I think it might be hard to convince them not to do antibiotics. I think I just got excited about, um, doing a moxclav rather than a fluoroquinolone and a metronidazole. So I think this is, this is a little bit of a bridge too far, but I'll, 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 I'll wait, I'll wait and watch and see what the heroes do and I'll follow closely behind. But Don't there, is, there is good data. <laughs> Don't look at me. I'm only seeing the people that end up needing surgery. Right. Yeah. Right. I have a selection Molly, so they, did, did the speaker give any more on that? Did they say these patients were diagnosed, like they presented with symptoms, they got a CAT scan, and then they they were just like, no, you're fine. Just take, did they, what, what were they doing for the patients instead? Uh, just, you know, hydration, simple diet, pain relief, time. Mm. Yeah. All right. Yeah, also, so it excluded, you know, immunocompromised patients, patients who were really sick, um, and it also excluded patients who had evidence of like perforation, um, yeah, or abscess. Huh? Okay, so no watchful waiting with an acute abdomen is what. We're... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, I think one of the talks later today is actually differentiating like the surgical versus the non-surgical abdomen. So maybe that'll make it into the next recap show. <laughs> Um, and then another one that is apparently not new, but I wasn't aware of, is that NSAIDs have been associated with increasing risk of developing diverticulitis. And so there is a recommendation from the American Gastron AGA. I'm not sure exactly what that stands for. That but, sounds right. <laughs> their practice update from just this year uh, recommended in patients who have previously had an episode of diverticulitis to discourage NSAID use because that is associated with um, rates of diverticulitis. And I, I had more just thought about it in terms of diverticular bleeds. Yeah, I don't think the gastroenterologists in general like NSAIDs. You know, they they're for IBD, they don't want you giving them uh, now diverticulitis. And of course, all the patients with like peptic ulcer disease and and various, you know, 
uh, upper GI stuff. So yeah, add this to the list. Yeah. And then moving on to constipation. Um, I think we're all pretty good at looking at metabolic causes for constipation. And then I sort of, if everything looks good there, diagnose them with IBS constipation type. Uh, but Dr. Rao encouraged us to kind of expand our differential to think more about slow transit constipation disorders and evacuation problems specifically. And Molly, in, you're, you're triggering one of my pearls. I think I would have to yeah. like, you keep going, but I would have to talk about one of mine before you move on. From Absolutely. <laughs> Um, and so with the evacuation problems, he highlighted that you actually can diagnose pelvic dysynergy just on rectal exam, on uh, digital rectal exam. And it actually has a very good correlation with more invasive testing, like anal manometry and balloon expulsion testing, which I hate to send my patients for. So this is kind of exciting. It's not something I have really tried before. Uh, but basically, he recommended um, on the digital rectal exam you obviously want to do the typical things, evaluate for mass or tenderness, how much stool is in the rectal vault. But then you want to ask the patient to squeeze their rectum and get a sense of, is this a normal squeezing pressure, weak or increased? And then also have them bear down and kind of evaluate their push effort if their sphincter relaxes at the same time and if they have normal perineal descent. So clinically, you can diagnose dysynergy if you have any of the two of the following. So Inability to relax the anal sphincter when you are bearing down, uh, paradoxical con contraction of their anal sphincter, or absence of perineal descent. And biofeedback can be very effective in treating these patients. Um, so I, was, I often refer patients for biofeedback for fecal incontinence, but I will be thinking about it more now for constipation. Right. It's, it's like uh, we talked about, I think, way back, Molly, pelvic physical therapy for patients with like urge incontinence. This sounds like a similar type of type of thing. I can't say that I look forward to trying to diagnose this in patients though. <laughs> the biofeedback actually uses um, probes to let the patient see sort of what their muscle tone is. So it's a little bit different than pelvic physical therapy, um, but probably in some centers overlaps to some extent. So the the pearl that I was, uh, was hinting at here is from uh, Dr. Amy Oxentenko, former guest on the show and a friend of, friend of the show, a uh, wonderful person, wonderful doctor. She talked about the exploratory comparative effectiveness trial of green kiwi fruit, psyllium, or prunes in U.S. patients with chronic constipation. And uh, Paul, you will be happy to know that two green kiwi fruits per day seem to increase bowel movements uh, by at least one per week. So, you know, that's that is uh, if your patient's looking for a natural supplement or a natural way to treat their constipation. You can tell them try and eat in, eating two kiwi so, fruits each day. Consider the kiwi, sure. <laughs> yeah, so, I, so do I, they have to be green? What about the yellow ones? Uh, are there yellow kiwis? Molly, there you're blowing my mind. Kiwis. What this about was kiwi... specifically green. What about kiwi berries? Have yeah. you ever heard of these? I, 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 as an N of one, I think kiwi berries work for this <laughs> as well. I'm sorry I brought it up, but they, this was <laughs> so. We'll link to it in the show notes. It's a fun, it's a fun trial. And Dr. Oxentenko's conclusion was two kiwis a day keeps the doctors away, which come on, you know. Well, and you, so you read the title very intentionally, but I wasn't moving quickly enough to actually keep up. What was the name of the trial? Does it have a name? Is it, there's uh, gotta be something awful attached to it. <laughs> you know what, Paul? I do, I did not see a cute acronym. It's, it's linked in the show notes there. So I you mean, can maybe. This is why GI is leaving money on the table. Cards is running away with yeah, it. Yeah. Like, why wasn't this called like the Kiwi poop trial or whatever, you know? Right. Gold. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that, that one was, uh, yeah, that was a great GI pearl. 
Molly, did you, anything else from that GI session or otherwise, I, I might just give some of the GI pearls from uh, the GI updates now since we're on the topic. Yeah, what, one quick final one was um, just thinking about C. diff and appreciating that recurrence rates are so high, but it can sometimes be challenging if you treat a patient with C. diff to know if it's a recurrence versus uh, post-diarrheal IBD, I'm sorry, IBS. Um, and she suggested that if it's post-infectious IBS, you'll more have up and down symptoms and patients can usually identify that it's not exactly the same type of diarrhea as it was during the initial C. diff episode. And then if you treat them with vancomycin or fidoxamycin, that they don't have as quick of a response as you would expect with if it were truly C. diff. And she highlighted some scary numbers that C. diff colonization rates are quite high, uh, up to 50% of residents in long-term care facilities. So that could be pretty challenging if you're seeing one of those patients for diarrhea to try to suss out if they have a positive C. diff test because they're colonized or is this truly an infection? Yeah. The other GI section that that complemented this one was the GI updates. And with Dr. Oxentenko, I just gave some of the pearls from that. So some other ones that, that'll be quick to go over. There was a an updated multi-task force guideline on uh, what to do with like adenomas and polyps. And this was from 2020, uh, Gupta in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. And they, they just mentioned in the guidelines that we you really have to, and the, and the gastroenterologists are, as a quality measure, they need to have a certain sequel intubation rate, uh, a withdrawal time that's at least six minutes when they're, when they're coming back out through the colon to look for polyps. And they should have an adenoma detection rate of at least 25%. And if they're not meeting those quality measures, then you know they may be missing polyps. That, and that's something that I had never really thought about. And I'm not sure as a primary care that that's necessarily your job to uh, be checking on like the, the group you're referring to, but that's something that the, the GI organization is recommending for the endoscopists. What I thought was more usable for you as a primary care from that section was that follow-up for low-risk adenomas, let's say they have one to two adenomas and they're a low risk and you can look at the table, that the follow-up can be seven to 10 years. So it's no longer if you have a single adenoma that you just automatically have a five-year follow-up. The other thing, so it can now be seven to 10 years if it's a low enough risk. If they have polyps and then have a surveillance colonoscopy, whatever the waiting interval is, let's call it seven years. If at that seven-year point, it's clean and there's no polyps, they can go back to the 10-year plan. And Paul, for for me, that was all practice changing because I thought once they have a polyp, it's a five-year follow-up for the rest of their life. That's a big deal. And I, I think that'll be much more convenient and better for patients. That's great. Yeah. I'm not sure how quickly you'll see this being taken up in your practice, but I think we should all be aware of it because you might start to see these intervals change from what you were used to seeing. Another super quick pearl, Paul, peppermint oil for IBS. That's that's a thing that that people can try. I think maybe we talked about that way back on our IBS episode. Although, Paul, I will admit it was uh, a conditional recommendation with some low certainty or low quality evidence. But still, Paul, come on. Cowards. Come on. Peppermint oil. If you tell a patient that they could, you know, if if your patient wants to try something, they're having uh, discomfort, you can at least try, you you can try that, especially if they want to try something that feels less like a medication to them. I think that's that's something to keep in your back pocket. For Molly, you're, I know you're working in a women's health clinic. This this last pearl that I had on the GI section, I think will be very relevant for, for your practice. I don't see as many women uh, who are of childbearing age or pregnant, but 
uh, this piano trial was done in uh, women with inflammatory bowel disease, and they were looking for, were there adverse events for the pregnancy in patients who were on their biologics or their uh, immunomodulator medications? And the good news is it seems like it is safe to continue those meds uh, during pregnancy. They did note that uncontrolled inflammatory bowel disease could actually be more risky to the to the mother and the baby than withdrawing these medications because uncontrolled disease has been associated with increased rate of spontaneous abortions. So I'm, I'm not sure, Molly, your experience, but that it seems like that was a really usable, like that was a good trial, good news. Yeah, I think it's nice to have data. I think we're used you know, there is some data out of the rheumatology literature as well. So I, I think this has probably been happening in practice to some extent, but it's always like nice extrapolated, to really, you mean from Yeah, from, exactly. It's it's always nice to have actual clear data that it is safe and Right. Paul, do you remember super gonorrhea? Oh sure. <laughs> I mean, just like personally you know, or in medical school, I'm not really sure what to do with that. <laughs> specific yeah, question. We we I think we've joked around about super gonorrhea before on the show. I not that it's a joking matter, but the the ID updates today. This is one of the ones that I've been worried ever since I heard the term super gonorrhea, I've been worried that it's coming to the United States that we're going to start to see it here and we'll have nothing to treat gonorrhea with. So the the speaker mentioned that the gonorrhea guidelines have been updated. Now instead of giving ceftriaxone 250 IM with azithromycin a gram as a one dose of each, you're, we're now giving ceftriaxone 500 milligrams IM times one, or if there are over 150 kilograms, a thousand milligrams IM times one. And the reason is because the resistance patterns, the minimal inhibitory concentration that we need to achieve with cephalosporins has gone up. So now we need to give this higher dose. And there has been this you know, cephalosporin-resistant gonorrhea that's out there, and a lot of the gonorrhea is already resistant to azithromycin, and so that's that's a scary thing that's out there. But I just the term super gonorrhea just, you know, it just I don't know. It sounds, reminds me of Super Godzilla for some reason, Paul. That's it's very strange. Like you know, you get the results of STI testing, not you personally, but when you get a patient's results back, <laughs> the royal way, and um, yes, and and you see like a gonorrhea or chlamydia, and you're sort of like, oh, thank God, this is something I can do something about. So the fact that we're sort of evolving to a point where it's becoming actually challenging to treat is is concerning, and it just again it points to the importance of counseling sexual health to your patients. Yeah, absolutely. Well, to to end on a a, a little bit of a lighter a note, super than, note, than super gonorrhea. Deb, tell us about sunscreen. Deb, uh, as you know, uh, I have a light complexion. The sun hates me, so I I need to avoid the sun. What I should be using? What kind of of sunscreen? So, as someone who has pretty much been inside, thank you, medical school. Um, <laughs> I haven't thought about sunscreen too much, but for uh, my couple sun exposed pre intern weeks ahead, I was had to buy sunscreen. And it looks like in the Dr. James O'Keefe's updates, he talked about sunscreen counseling. So titanium dioxide and zinc oxide are, are what we should be pushing patients towards. And some of the organic compound-based sunscreens are now banned in places like Hawaii because they've been shown to have bad effects on the, the wildlife and could potentially have some, some negative biological effects as well. On people, right? Because they can be absorbed through the skin versus the inorganic, uh, the zinc, the titanium, they're, they're just barriers that are protecting you. 
And uh, I, I don't think there, he, he said there was no like yet conclusive evidence that it's, it's harmful for people, but it, it's kind of scary. I mean, I don't, I don't want a inorganic sunscreen that is harming the environment or inorganic sunscreen that's harming the environment might be absorbed into my body. Yeah. And that's, that's why I wear like a straw hat and those like, you know, whatever those UV blocking shirts and all that stuff and get made fun of by my, my family for that. But uh, this, this made me a little scary about the, about the sunscreen thing. Yeah. I think I remember seeing some of the press out of Hawaii when the ban went into effect. And I think they specifically said it's to protect coral reefs and marine environments. Oh, interesting. Maybe we can link it, something in the show notes. Yeah. So Paul, you're, you're bronzing. Uh... Oh, I <laughs> knew it was going to be my downfall. For the listener at home, I am translucent. <laughs> yeah yeah paul uh as a podcast as a podcast we uh we d- we do not do well in the sun here <laughs> this has been another episode of the curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole yummy kiwi all right, we'll allow it. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us uh, when other people find the show. It helps us get better guests. helps us make better content for you. You can also send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. I wanted to thank all our producers who presented on this episode and helped write this one. Also to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov on the website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter on the transcription team. Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. And until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I've been Dr. Avital Yehudit Oglasser. And I've been almost Dr. Deborah Gorth. Nicely done. And we should also be sure to thank Stuart for composing the theme music. You're doubtless hearing behind our sweet, sweet voices. We should thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing this audio. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.